podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Oh, here we are. Uh, start video. Yep. Yeah. There yep. we go. Paddy. Hi. And Roger coming in as well. As an overlapping fullback. There he is, coming up the right wing. An honour to be on the programme with you gentlemen, who I've admired in different ways for so long. Let me tell you that Colin Schindler is the finest non-professional goalkeeper I've ever played against <laughs> in my life. He would lay down his life on tarmac or concrete without thought. With knee pads, I think one has to say. All right, OK. <laughs> Hello and welcome again to Football Ruined My Life, the miracle podcast that takes years off your life and transforms you into being 18 years old again, but without the acne and the financial dependency on your parents. This week, sadly, following Leicester City's relegation, we are without one of our regulars. John Holmes, like the Roman, has covered his face with his toga and fallen on his sword. However, He'll be back next week. So, like the other nine or ten occasions when Leicester City have been relegated, he will have failed to apply the coup de grace, for which we're all actually very grateful. And I think I should end the classical illusion by pointing out that, unlike the Roman, John, and indeed none of us here, sees the Tiber foaming with much blood. Right. My friend, the distinguished football writer Patrick Barclay, is with us as usual, I'm glad to say, although he's joining us from a Greek island. So if you can hear the sound of frolicking in a swimming pool, that'll be Paddy celebrating Dundee's promotion to the Scottish Premier League. Very much so. Stripping off his tracksuit and coming on to John's place for this edition is a voice that will be enjoyably familiar to many of our podcast regulars who also listen to Radio 4, and in particular to Feedback, which he has presented since the early 19th century until recently deposed to the outrage of all of us who enjoyed his signature, Hello. It's now available on his new podcast, B-Watch. I refer, of course, to the journalist, broadcasting executive, and formerly a doughty opponent on our Friday lunchtime five-a-side games, Roger Bolton. Hello, and I know all about relegation since I've supported Carlisle United since I was a child. Brompton Park is not so much the theatre of dreams as the theatre of nightmares. Well, that's what we wanted to talk to you about, actually, Roger. My um, nightmares, my nightmares, yeah. Well, not so much the nightmares, but it's true with everybody that we talk to is, how did you get into being a football supporter? What was your first match? How did it all begin? Well, I don't remember my first match, but I do remember going at the age of about seven, I think I've probably been before then, to Brunton Park. And, of course, in those days, the great attraction of Brunton Park was when the football got very boring you could look over at the Eden Valley and beautiful sheep and the grass and whatever. And since so few people attended Carlisle United, there was plenty of opportunity. It should be understood that Carlisle United was always the bottom of whatever league existed. Now, of course, we've just been promoted to the first division, so we're reeling with shock. But generally, it was the bottom of the bottom. And so it was a combination of a thrill to be there and deep, deep disappointment. Well, constantly. I mean, there must have been some Oh, no, there were highlights. I exaggerate a little. We did have a <laughs> wonderful South African called Alf Ackerman who played for us in about 955, who was fantastic. We had a wonderful moment when we drew 3-3 with Birmingham, falling 3-1 behind. We had a centre-forward called Hugh McLemoyle, who could hang in the air, really could. I mean, I know it's impossible, but he did. But the trouble with Carlisle was you either produced really good young people who stayed with you for about six months, 
or recovering alcoholics who were trying to get back, <laughs> or people who were having a last season before they departed, you know, with widening girths. But I mean, we had great stars. We had Peter Beardsley. Ah. Uh, we had Stan Bowles. And of course, our manager, you know, going back before my time was Bill Shankly. Yes. And then the real star when I sort of was growing up was Ivor Broadis, because yes. he played for England and two or three years later was playing for Carlisle and became the player manager. Clever inside forward, wasn't he? Yes, yes, yes. And of course, later became a journalist. I had the pleasure of meeting him, a wonderful, modest man. But am I right in thinking, Roger, that he is the only manager to have sold himself because he was player-manager, I think. <laughs> was it Carlisle? And a bid came in, and of course the manager took the call, and he said, which player do you want? And it was him. Yes, so, well, that, that was on his way up. Yeah. He was there, and I was at school with his son, who was, you know, that combination, if you're a 14 or 15-year-old, proud and embarrassed if your father was sort of playing, really. The other person I didn't mention, the sort of stars we had, we had a guy called Chris Balderstone, Oh, yeah. He played cricket for England as well as Carlisle. So he genuinely would sort of play for Carlisle, to drive down the motorway to Leicestershire, play for Leicestershire the next day, and then come back. Quite extraordinary. He was a wonderful ball player, but rather like another guy called George McVitie. They had everything but speed. You know, they yeah. had all the ability and just lacked speed. It was very sad. Yes. Oh, by the way, I've mentioned two others quickly. I've got to get them in the front. Peter yep. Thompson, who was the wonderful winger from Liverpool yep. in the 60s. He came from Carlisle. Kevin Beatty, sensational player for Ipswich and didn't quite have the inning through. He should have had because of injury. He was there as well. So we've produced people. We just can't hold on to them. But there was a famous time in the 60s when you did hold on to them and when you suddenly went up the divisions. Well, it was actually, it was the beginning of 70. It was, I think it was 72 or whatever when I'd just been in London for a short while. And then to my shock and amazement, I was followed to London by Carlisle United to play Fulham in the first, what was then the first division, the Premiership not existing. And they had this meteoric rise under a guy, a manager called Alan Ashman, who'd been, I'd first seen as a centre-forward when I was about eight and came back and managed Carlisle on various occasions. And he got the team up and they won the first three matches and they were top of the first division. And then, of course, they got relegated that same season and went down. I never quite worked out why it happened. It was a team of good players with a good manager who all played for each other. But there were no reserves, of course. So once you got into the winter and once you got injuries, there was nobody to come on the field to help them. And so it started to slide. The thing about Carlo, which I think you need to remember, is that the population then and now is only about 65,000. You have to go over the Pennines to Newcastle to find another town, you know, more than 50,000. And, of course, Newcastle, had Newcastle, Sunderland, Middlesbrough, all of those people. You had to go to Scotland. Well, you could have gone to Dumfries for Queen's Park, but essentially Queen of the South, but essentially you're going to... 90 miles, 95 miles to Glasgow, Edinburgh to find any football teams. Or if you go south, you're down to Preston. So the total population of Cumberland is only about 250,000. So if the population of Carlisle is about 55,000, on spectacular occasions, they got 15,000. But when I was supporting them, it was 10 or 12. And now it's a struggle to get above four. Mm. Now, when you were at is it Carlisle Grammar School you were at? I went to grammar school, yeah. Yeah, so when you were there and your other football-supporting mates, would they all Carlisle supporters, or did they? some of them support Newcastle and Sunderland, all the clubs you mentioned, because they were a bigger club and they were in the first division? Well, you could safely support Newcastle as well because you'd never played them. I mean, we were more likely to play Blythe Spartans. But the real tension came when we played Workington, because Carlisle were blues, Workington were reds, and occasionally you'd go down and play Barrow. 
And I remember on boxing days, you know, sometimes you'd go on the train, big adventure as a teenager, in trains without aisles, of course. So you, sorry, I shouldn't say this, peed out the window because there was no alternative. Uh, <laughs> and, went to, and went to Workington and watched them working in Reds. Actually, when I was a very young journalist on a thing called The Money Program on BBC Two, I persuaded the money program to make a film about Workington Town Football Club. Because, you know, I said, well, in the money program, we do anything and it can deal with finances. And how on earth does a small town like Workington support a football club? And the answer was not for much longer. And, of course, in that program, I met a guy called Bob Lord, who was uh, running Burnley, the butcher around Burnley. Yeah. And it was that generation of local businessmen who basically had supported the club, hated the idea that anybody else should be involved in taking the decisions. And we're about on their last legs and are about to be deposed. So they opposed any they opposed any change that was possible. And Bob Lord at, at Burnley was one of those. Well, the only thing I should say, my big memory of football was going my dad to Hampden Park when England beat Scotland 4-0, I think. And it was Bobby Charlton's first goal for England, Tom Finney. Oh, I remember it. From the wing, and Bobby Charlton put it in. This must be about 58. But the thing I remember, I remember two other things about it. First of all, looking at a man with a bald head, and he had a dart stuck in the top of his bald head. I think he was so inebriated, he didn't know. <laughs> Nobody noticed. And then after the match, we were down at the front, Dad waited a bit until everybody had gone because he was worried about safety. And I remember turning around and walking up the standing areas and so on, and the bottles, uh, there was more glass there than there was in a glass factory. Yeah. The drink was extraordinary. Didn't see anybody drunk. I just said, bottle, bottle, bottle. Actually, we're so unhappy, the Scots, after the 4-0 drubbing. They gave up. The thing about the Scots playing the Scots is you always know you'd never really lose 4-0 to Scots because the moment they got 2-1 up, they'd be so happy. Well, English people can't understand that. I mean, that was in 1967 when Scotland became the world champions. England were down to 10 effective players because Jack Charlton was unable even to limp, really. He was so badly injured but had to stay on the field. I think they did the old thing of putting him on the wing yeah. Anyway, we were up against 10 men. And so Baxter was able to do the keepy up. And I think Dennis Law might have sat on the ball. The piss take to bring the English down a peg or two was much more important than getting the winning <laughs> nine, three. But it must know? have driven the manager mad. It was only 2 1. <laughs> they were only 1 up. <laughs> I, know, I know, but it's not the Scottish word is gallus, you know, for what Jim Baxter was. And that was what they wanted to do at that particular time. But you had a guy like Jimmy Johnson, didn't you, who was a sensational winger. If George Best had never lived, Jimmy Johnston would probably yeah. be remembered as the best British yeah. winger of all time. But he again liked to be people twice. I mean, ah, my hero, you know, Peter Thompson came from Carlisle, went to Harrowby School, played for Liverpool. Yeah. I had the good fortune to go to Liverpool University between 64 and 67, when Liverpool were really coming to the fore and played the European Cup yeah. for the first time. And Peter was one of the great players, or should have been, dare I say this, he's not very bright. He had all the skills, but he would beat somebody twice. Instead of beating somebody, getting down there and crossing it, he beat it, go down, stop the ball, the fullback gets back, beat him again, the defence gets back. It's wonderful to watch, but it was not direct. And for some no. reason or other, you had Ian Callaghan on the other wing, who didn't yeah. for Liverpool, who didn't have anything like the skills of Peter Thompson, but was direct. It's like watching Francis Lee, you know, from Manchester City. Lee got the ball, and then, where's the goal? I'm going. Straight yeah. to the goal, bang, it's in the net. I don't think he bothered about anything else, just no. this ball is going in that net. Centre forwards hate those people. David Ginola was another of them. He didn't think you were allowed to cross until you'd beaten the guy three times. But of course, by that time, the centre backs have got time to get into position. So the centre forward has less of a chance of scoring. 
But I still thought Peter Thompson was a wonderful player. Went on to Preston and before Liverpool, I think, didn't he, Roger? He did, yes. Yeah, started there and then he ended up running a garage. Like so many of them, of course, one forgets that in the 60s and 70s, you know, what the, your club tended to do with you when you'd retired was to help you get a job as a, in a garage or... I remember there's a wonderful uh, wing half of Carlo who had set up electrical business and was helped in that way. But there was no sense in which they took a lot of money away from them and wondered what they should do. Of course, yeah. Stan Bowles, we, we sort of, Carlisle sort of resuscitated Stan Bowles' career. He was immensely talented. He came to us briefly before he went to QPR. And somebody in Carlisle managed to, you know, A, stop him going to the pub, B, stopping having any money to go into the bookies and persuaded all the local bookies not to give him credit. The moment he went to QPR, everybody bought him a drink. All the bookies would let him win. And there was, was you know, poor lad was perpetually in debt. It was either Ashman or Joe Mercy who said, if only Stamboles could pass a betting shop the way he can pass the football. That's right. So, Roger, you ended up in Liverpool University at the time that you couldn't have chosen three better years to have arrived there. You arrived there in the second year of the Beatles. And... All the Mersey sound and Everton as league champions, followed by Liverpool as league champions. God, he must have been paradise in Liverpool at that point. Well, it was heaven. I mean, mind you, there are only two good teams, you know, Liverpool, Liverpool Reserves. Sorry, that's an old joke. No, it was. Actually, the Beatles had just left. I got there in 64. I mean, I'd seen them first in Carlisle when they were second on the bill to Roy Orbison, but that's another story. Anyway, when I got there in 64, it was a question, who do you support, Liverpool or Everton? For some reason or other, it was Liverpool first. I think probably because of Peter Thompson. But I did, without admitting to anybody, I did go and watch Everton the School of Science. So, you know, Kendall Ball and Harvey. And I had to admit to myself that they actually played better football than Liverpool did. But Liverpool somehow played far more direct and successfully. The other thing, of course, we always stand in the cop. And of course, you had to be there two hours in beforehand. And people had drunk quite a lot. So they took the early foot, I think it was the footy echo. Anyway, the one that told you what was going to happen as opposed to the one that yeah. everyone had. And of course, they couldn't move. So they used it to divert the flow of you, uh, Ryan. So that you were standing there, it was flowing past you, if not on you, but these rivers of urine were going down. And of course, when people scored, the whole place moved. You ceased to stand on your feet and went backwards and forwards. It was wonderful. But two things stand out in my mind, apart from the wonderful 5-0 victory over Leeds United when Jack Sharp couldn't believe what was happening to him. One was when Ron Yates, big Ron Yates, who was absolutely massive, he was at the cop end and the ball was at the far end. We were at the cop end. He walked over to the opposing centre forward, nutted him on the head. <laughs> the guy falls out and Ron Yates walks away. Of course, there are no cameras. The linesman looking at the ball. The referee's not there. And the injured innocence. And he got away with it. And the second thing I remember about all of that was there was a young guy called Tommy Smith came into the team, not very tall, terrifying wing half of the sort of Ron Harris, Chopper Harris in mentality. You know, you may put the ball past me, but you're not going past me. Anyway, early on in the match, somebody, I think probably was the Leeds match, somebody, maybe Bremen or whatever, really tackled Torrey Smith and knocked him over. And then there was a deathly hush in Anfield, which I'd never heard before. And it went on for two or three minutes. And the hush was because we knew it was going to happen. And within two minutes, Bremner was tackled and he was up in the air and almost out of the ground. And Smith walked off without waiting for the ref to tell him. It's just an extraordinary moment. If I had to talk about Leeds, I would have to say, although I didn't, I'd mind some of the players, but they were a dirty team. I mean, Johnny Giles was the dirtiest ankle tapper I ever saw. He was such a skillful player, but he was an ankle tapper. He wasn't so ferocious. He was just dirty. And then we had quite a lot of that in Reeves' team, I'm afraid, my view anyway. 
No, no, we did a show on dirty leads and Revy's leads and why they needed to be dirty because there was such a good sign. Why on earth did they feel they had to do this? And we were exploring the psychology of this very insecure man and the team that he built in his own image. Yeah, really. It was extraordinary, wasn't it? I mean, I remember just, I think, seeing him, because I'm that old, as the deep-lying centre-forward, you know, which he was supposed to have innovated. And I remember not quite understanding that was about. You know, my first memory, really, is, I suppose, of Stanley Matthews' Cup final, watching that, and my father next year telling me, you may have seen Stanley Matthews, where did you see Tom Finney? And in the 1954 Cup final, I think between Preston and probably Luton Town, no, it's a uh, West Bromwich Albion. Was it? Oh, sorry, right. Three two to West Brom. Anyway, and Finney hardly did anything. No, he had a poor game. And Dad was so depressed about that. But there's the great story about Shankly being asked because Shankly was go- always going on about Tom Finney and how brilliant Tom Finney was. And yeah. one of the Liverpool players said to him, to put it in context, boss, was Tom Finney as good as Keegan, current player? He said, well, yes, he's probably just about the same standard as, as Keegan, but you have to understand that Tom Finney's sixty-eight now. I think Finney was I mean who knows I can't remember he was a complete player wasn't he he could do almost anything he could play either wing or centre forward well obviously I never saw him play but I did have the honour of meeting him when he was basically Mr Preston and always at the club helping the manager totally modest man I just remember him being an absolutely super bloke but I would have loved to have seen him play because if he was better than Matthews he must have been well, I, I don't think he perhaps dribbled as well as Matthews, but he did almost everything else. But I met him once in, I think it must have been 58, 59, something. The Preston Plumber, of course. Yeah. Um, he came one evening to Carlisle, so he'd written his book, Autobiography, and he, it was worth his while, shows how much he didn't earn in football, worth his while getting the train up to Carlisle to go and talk to 100 people and maybe sell 30 books. Yeah. And as you say, the most modest man, actually slightly embarrassed by his fame, really interested to talk to you, and then unassumingly walk back to the station. Probably one of these people who walk with their heads slightly down, you know. No airs and graces, and yet on a pitch. Remarkable. I think Finney was one of the few people whom Shankly felt inferior to. He would defer to Tom Finney and Matt Busby. But apart from that, I don't think there were too many people that Shankly deferred to. Well, I think as a player, Shankly, I don't know enough, I never saw him play, but I understand. But he, basically, his job was to get the ball and give it to Tom Finney. Just get it and give it to him and watch by the way, another memory of Carlisle just come back to me, and I actually connects Carlisle and Everton, is I saw goalkeepers in Carlisle and Everton both throw the ball into their own net, which is a really difficult thing to do. There's a guy called Gordon Fairley for Carlisle United. Actually, there are two things about Gordon Fairley. The first was the own goal, where he pulled back his hand to throw the ball out, but unfortunately let go. So he wished the hand back behind him, and it went into the back of the net which is extraordinary. And then I saw Gordon West, I think, do it slightly differently. And this one, I don't... I mean, I understand the first one, how it could happen. I don't understand how the second one happened, where he threw the ball in a sort of arc, or rather his hand went into an arc, but the ball didn't. So he did almost 180 degrees, or was it 360, and the ball ended up in the back of the net, having gone all the way in front of him, around, behind. And everybody looked at him, just totally baffled. They hadn't believed it. The only other occasion I remember at Carlisle, similar, was... Carlisle were in one of their very defensive moves where the one thing they didn't want to do was to give the ball away and attack, you know, that would be terrible. So they kicked off, I think the second half. The centre-forward passed to a little guy on the left wing called Ernie Bond, and he lobbed the ball back to his goalkeeper. His goalkeeper was Gordon Fairley again, was actually just putting his hat and his gloves in the net (laughs) and then heard the crowd. 
got up, saw the ball was going to it, ran, but the ball bounced over his head into the net. And it was one of those moments where you were just suffused with a combination of joy because you were there and could tell people about it, and despair because this is what Carlisle did. Oh, dear. The goalkeeper was not Alan Ross, one of the greatest uncapped Scottish goalkeepers of all time. Glad you brought up Alan Ross because I think he was part of the McElmoyle McVitie team, wasn't he? He was, he was. I mean, I'd like actually, if you've got a moment, Roger, to dwell on that team because I loved Balderston. I thought he was an an artist, as you rightly said. If he'd had pace, well, I suppose you could say if he'd had pace, he wouldn't have still been at Carlisle. But oh, kind but true. Yeah. You got into what would now be called the Premier League. Yeah. But who were the centre backs in that side? Oof, I'm not sure. But you're right about George McVitie in the sense that McVitie, who played for England, by the way, as Peter Thompson did as a schoolboy, McVitie, together with Balderston, was a fantastic passer of the ball. And Balderston also had a tremendously powerful shot. It's just that he yes. never often got near the goal. You know, I can't remember. This isn't the terrible. I remember Alan Ross, who was a very slender figure who you thought you could push over. But yeah. it's the longest. I think he played Moff Carlin and everybody else and was very agile. But when corners were coming in, it wasn't very good. Somebody had to go and do it for him. So they tended to recruit large figures. By the way, to talk about goalkeepers of colour, just briefly, the greatest, of course, I wasn't there when Jimmy Glass scored his um, goal. Uh, you know, end of, of the 98-99 season, 95th minute, we're about to be relegated from everything, and Jimmy Glass scores. And that was, I remember I was in Bush House listening to it. And I've got his book here. Let me just say, just read you one thing from Jimmy Glass's book, One Hit Wonder. It says, a one-time gambling addict and bodyguard for Andre Agassi, as well as the only keeper to score an own goal at Wembley. <laughs> Jimmy Glass's roller coaster career is a world away from the standard football biography. His journey through every level of the game, from Premier League to Sunday League, takes him to 22 clubs in 17 years and sees him battling to stay afloat in a sport awash with money but drowning in debt. And the headline was, Jimmy Glass saved the football club. Now all he had to do was save himself. Uh. The trouble is about that, and I remember, is that if you like Jimmy Glass and you do that, and you're anywhere near Carlisle, somebody will always buy you a drink. If you have a weakness in that way, you're almost doomed, don't you, by the memories. Is it true that in those days, if you bought a pint, for someone, you were actually contributing to the national exchequer in the <laughs> sense the brewery was nationalised. Is that true? That's true. Carlisle State Management Scheme. What happened was, in the First World War, a large number of munitions were made near Gretna, just over the border, a thing called the Devil's Porridge, they called it. And a lot of people uh, were imported from Ireland and elsewhere and also from Carlisle would go up there and come back to Carlisle and there were pubs virtually in every corner, and they were really worried that people would end up in these munitions factories drunk. So they nationalised, Lloyd George's government nationalised it, and, and they thought the state management scheme would actually spread throughout the country, and it, I think it didn't spread beyond Dalston or Brampton near Carlisle. But it was, and when I was growing up, the great thing was they did Carlisle Pale Ale, fantastic beer apparently, but spent nothing on the pubs. So you went to drink late at night and you went to get drunk largely. This southern idea that you went to a pub with maybe a family and had a meal was bizarre. You went, to, <laughs> you went to drink and the drink was cheap and the drink was good. But it never extended. I, I think it was about 1960 or so where the family ended the state management scheme. How have you managed to keep the Carlisle flame alive, given the fact you don't live there and you've got other things in your life? Two things. I support three teams, to be honest. Carlisle, QPR, 
because I moved to West London, but Liverpool because, you know, I was there at university and also I fear because they were successful. But it feels like a betrayal of your whole family, background, childhood, everything else, if you desert your first team and your loyalty. And also because there's something wonderful about, well, it's wonderful if your team wins, whatever it is, but when you've got this small team, which is really going to get defeated most of the time and on the whole would be in the bottom division, when it wins, let alone gets promoted, there is a joy. I don't think you get from anything else. I mean, does a Manchester City person after the treble feel prouder than I did for Carlisle getting up from the second division to the first, even though it was in the knockhouse and extra time and penalties and they were a bit lucky? I mean, it's just, and you know the pleasure. I mean, you know, Carlisle is a great place to be brought up in. It's near the Lake District, but not a lot goes on there. So when the football team does something, it means more than almost anything else. So in that season in which Carlisle played in the first division as well, yes. and they played Liverpool, presumably at some point, what were your feelings? Oh, well, no question you support Carlisle. Roger, it's fine. I, I knew you, you supported both Carlisle and Liverpool. The QPR one is actually quite new. And after having three clubs, personally, I find it a little excessive, but you're entitled to whatever you want to do. Yeah. Paddy, of course, can speak with some authority about having two clubs. Fulham's my... I'm a season ticket holder at Fulham, which is a, a hell of a privilege, actually. It's a lovely club to support. I mean, you can look at the River Thames when you're bored, can't you? You could indeed when I first started going, but now you can't because they've built that wonderful new stand. You know, every inch of space is used for revenue generation. But I sit in the Haynes, the little old-fashioned Archie Leach stand that overlooks it. And the two completely different era stands really sort of go together for some strange reason. Everything about the place, even the statue of Johnny Haynes looks like, guess what, Johnny Haynes. And I've never seen a football statue actually looks like the person it's commemorating. What's his hair like? Because I remember as a young kid, Johnny Haynes, I remember Dennis Compton, I'm afraid to say, being Brill Cream, but Johnny Haynes did something. Was it Brill Cream as well? Yeah. He was such an elegant, beautiful player. And in terms of passing the ball, but he looked good. You know, some people play well, but don't look good. But Johnny Haynes, I vaguely remember, looked elegant when he was playing. He was like a film star, although he wasn't the best looking footballer of all time. The best looking footballer of all time, and I, I'm biased here, because he played for Dundee, and his name was Gordon Smith. He was known as the gay, obviously, because of the gay Gordon. It was of its time. And he actually had dinner with Bridget Bardot. You said dinner, yeah. not lunch. Is there a significance in dinner that isn't in lunch? But, Roger, you know people from our part of the world call lunch dinner, don't they? Yeah, they do, but we're now trying... Was it the evening meal or the lunchtime meal? <laughs> I'll explain. It was an evening meal, but I think what might spoil the story for you, Roger, is that her husband of the time was at the same meal. But no, Gordon won league medals in Scotland with three different clubs, and not one of them was Rangers or Celtic. Was he Hibernian? Yes, he was oh. one of the first five at Hibs. Oh. He also won a league medal with Hearts in the great days after the war when pretty well anybody could win the Scottish League any of the bigger clubs. And then at the age of 38, he was signed by Shankly, that's Bob Shankly, the brother of Bill, for Dundee, and went on to win a title with a third different club, not one of them the old firm. Anyway, that was the football. He was a great footballer. I saw him score in the European Cup at the age of 39 against Anderlecht. Wonderful goal. But quite apart from the football, he was incredibly glamorous. As soon as the season was over, he'd climb into his sports car, drive down to the Côte d'Azur, 
where he met his mate, Sidney Bechet. Now, if Ooh. you know anything about... Oh, great jazz player. Yeah. Great jazz player, yeah. For some reason, he was a mate of Sidney Bechet's. So he would go down. And anyway, one day he was staying with Sidney and he went for a walk. And this glamorous woman, whose garden he'd strayed into by mistake, said, can I help you? Where are you trying to get to? And he said, well, I was trying to get up that hill. And they got talking and it was Miss Bardot. He'd strayed into Mr. Vado's garden. Anyway, she said, it's very nice to meet you. Would you like to come round for dinner? He hesitated, of course, for a long time. <laughs> of course. And the list of Dundee players who've had dinner with Bridget Bardot, well, it extends to, let me see, one. Yeah, that's right, one. I would love to have been present at the table of that dinner, if only to hear how the conversation developed, because what on earth did they have in common... Because I, beauty, I, I beauty. I think, I, think the, I think beauty is what you're talking about. You'd have to Google this guy to see how good looking he was in a Latin way. I think Bridget was probably used to dealing with sort of leading men who were as handsome as Gordon. But anyway, Dundee is my club. And, you know, I was 14 when I saw Gordon, along with Alan Gilzean and the rest of win the league. But now I simply can't afford to go to Dundee. It's quite a quite difficult place to get to. And I can't afford to go to many games, although I do have a season ticket holder. So really, I'm more of a regular at Fulham, but much more of a regular at Fulham. Well, I'll be at Charlton. You see, the great thing about Carlisle now being in the first division is that they're going to play clubs like Charlton. So, you know, it's just down the road. So it does come around. Third Division North was the worst time when they didn't come south, of course, by definition. Yeah. Did you feel that Carlisle didn't get... Because I always felt that your aspirational local derby would be Newcastle, I suppose. Yeah. And yet it's, what, 60 miles away? Yeah, 56, 60 miles. It's over the hills. Yeah, it's over the Pennines. It's it's not a place you dropped into. <laughs> was your TV area time tees, was it? Yeah, it was. What, the problem with BBC now and in the past was that, really, Carlisle had more in common with the south of Scotland, with Annan, with Dumfries, with those places, than he yes. did either with South, Manchester, whatever, or Newcastle. And then the BBC stupidly made the decision about 1986 that they would give Carlisle Manchester and the Northwest. Well, with due respect to the other participant in this conversation, you know, that's a different world. Yes. Now, you've mentioned Border Television. At one stage, I think a very high up chap in Border Television was... Sir John Burgess, yeah, whose son was my boss, my great mate, actually. Robin. No, Charlie Burgess. Ah, right. I was a journalist and he was my sports editor as well as my landlord, actually, when I joined The Independent many, many years ago. And Charlie is a mad keen to this day, a mad keen. And he calls it Carlisle. It is Carlisle. It's not Carlisle. It's Carlisle. Yeah, it's like Penrith is Penrith. And people keep saying Penrith. Oh, whatever. Charlie's mad about it to this day. I spoke to him only a few weeks ago, and they live in North London somewhere. And even if Carlisle are playing in East Anglia or something, they'll be there. They will yeah. be there every Saturday. Oh, God, I'm feeling guilty now. You make me feel so guilty. I haven't been to enough matches. I, I realised once I'd embarked on that that you'd start drawing odious comparisons. Uh, with myself, believe me, yes, with myself. Yes, well, I feel that way about Dundee. It's a sense of betrayal, isn't it? It's a sense of betrayal. Yeah. It's like all of those friends who unfortunately die and you think, oh, I was going to visit them and he never did. Don't suggest that Carlisle is going to die, <laughs> but, they nearly, but they nearly went out once to watch the football league. I will be at Charlton. I will be at Charlton. 
this yeah. year. It's interesting. I mean, remembering the Jimmy Glass incident, which you bring back quite rightly. I mean, it did bring Car, Car sorry, Carlisle, 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 to, Carlisle to the yes, attention Carlisle. of the nation. You see, what happened when Burnley went through exactly the same situation a couple of years before then? They were going out of the league unless they won their last game, which they did. Is that Burnley recovered? Burnley are now, you know, Premier League club again. No, but look at look at. I mean, of course, there are a lot of the clubs in Lancashire and so on. But look at the potential. You know, it's not if you're yeah. in Preston, it's not difficult to go to Burnley. It's not difficult. Well, it's not even. Alistair Campbell will tell you it's not difficult from North London, won't he? But potentially a lot more people to draw upon. If you're in Carlisle, there isn't really. I mean, that's the problem. We used to, apart from watching the sheep, which was, you know, great fun when the football was boring. The other thing that we really admired most of all was the quality of the turf, because for a while. Oh. Wembley Stadium had Solway Turf. Oh. And we had Solway Turf. And as we had Solway Turf and we had rain all the time, the yeah. condition of the pitch was always pretty remarkable, pretty wonderful. If you didn't have Liverpool as your yeah. fail-safe, as it were, because Liverpool will always be contention somewhere. I mean, this sounds a really patronising comment. It's not supposed to be. It's a genuine comment. But if you didn't have Liverpool, how do you think you would have survived, you know, 60-odd years that you've been supporting Carlisle without any promise of anything other than saving yourself from being extinct? But there's a certain attraction in certainty. You know, it's hope that kills. And we never had any hope for Carlisle, really. So, you know, you never killed because what happened was what you expected to happen, which was the worst. So there's a certain satisfaction in that. The terrible thing is the what might have been, if the what might have been were really possible. And, you know, it's like Liverpool, you know, who was that young lad from Arsenal scoring that last goal? Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas, yeah. I mean, it's the moments like that which just are unbearable, aren't they? Whereas with Carlisle, you know, a 3-0 defeat isn't unbearable. It's just the expected. And also, if your life is going too well for you, if you wander around to Brighton Park, you know, you get brought down to earth. Also, the other thing which I should say is there's a certain grim humour, pessimistic humour, <laughs> that you're yeah. standing next to somebody. is quite fun. It grinds you down after a bit, but there's an enjoyment, there's a perverse enjoyment in it. In some ways, better that than having, you know, hope, than having something snatched away from you at the last moment. I mean, it has been quite difficult, the collapse of Liverpool. Colin, I'm afraid I'm going to have to leave you. I'm sorry about this no, at this moment. No, no, no. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm sorry I've talked so much, particularly when you've got somebody like Patrick who knows what he's talking no, about. No, we're trying it on all the time. So, <laughs> we're, we're, we're special guests. Patrick, it was lovely to talk to you. And thank you very much for giving up so much time in your holiday to talk to us. It's been great having you on. And it's kind of you to say that about the holiday. But being on this podcast has become, I'm sad old bugger, it's become my recreation. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at this point, I want to say thank you so much to Roger Bolton, our special guest for the occasion, with some very entertaining memories of life in Carlisle, which I now understand, and Penrith, which I I previously had been mistakenly called by quite the wrong names. Thanks too to Paddy for breaking into his holiday to celebrate along with us, and we'll see you next time on Football Ruin My Life. Cheerio. Sports Social Podcast Network.